This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. I will talk about this with you if you want, but if you're doubting yourself, I can't indulge that. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. I knew I had to run. Someone needs to scrub the stink from this office. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to episode four, which we're calling What Would Jesus Do? I'm joined by WNYC's senior editor of politics and policy, Andrea Bernstein. She's covered Obama, Bush, New York Governor Cuomo, New York City Mayor Bloomberg. Too many big ticket politicos to count. Andrea, welcome. So thrilled to be here on this podcast. (laughs) And also with me is Matt Katz, who's covered New Jersey Governor Chris Christie longer than any other reporter, first for the Philadelphia Inquirer, now for WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. And he was the first to ask about Christie's Waterloo, otherwise known as Bridgegate. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Brooke. Looking forward to it. Okay, so it seems like religion runs through this episode, and we also see more of the Underwood's corrupt machinations and dealings with the press. But we're going to start on the Supreme Court case for Mr. Mahmoud, the American citizen who was maimed and whose family was killed by a drone. Now, this is not the same drone strike that Frank executed early with Claire by his side. This one was inherited from President Walker. We didn't really dig into it in our last recap, so we'll just refresh here for a second. Frank tells Heather Dunbar, the Solicitor General, to tell the country that a U.S. citizen was, in fact, maimed by a drone strike. She's arguing this case. The terrorist successfully targeted was Zuri Aziz. He routinely used civilians as human shields. Mr. Mahmoud's family did not know Aziz was in the same building. The drone strike is responsible for their deaths. Mr. Mahmoud has suffered a terrible injury and loss. While the government's action is tragic, it wasn't unlawful. It was legal, it was necessary, and it was right. She says, right now the president is at Arlington, and we see him there, and they're burying three Navy SEALs who have died in Afghanistan to illustrate this very point. That was beautiful political stagecraft, wasn't it? That they they went to Arlington as she was arguing before the Supreme Court. It was beautiful. It was masterful, I thought. And where they are telling the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is this such an apocryphal story about Abraham going and saying, yes, God, I will kill my own son if you ask me to show my faith. And then later, of course, we hear that the bishop gives that speech every time he buries someone at Arlington. Okay, so then Frank is there with his congressional ally, Jackie, who says, watch out for Dunbar. She's probably going to run for president. And she's squeaky clean. And And uh, she has money. 
That's right. And that's the thing that gets Frank going. Well, we have to assume this is happening. We need to end her campaign before it begins. She's clean. Walker read her for Solicitor General. Then again, when he made a special prosecutor. It's one of the things that makes her so attractive. Thank you, Jackie. Yes, sir. Well, if we can't knock her out, we have to figure out another way. Okay, this happens really all the time. So yes. dirt is leaked on somebody or somebody's offered a job as a justice. In New Jersey, when the political bosses can't beat an opponent or they have to spend too much money to beat an opponent, they offer them a judgeship. And it works nine out of ten times. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, this is very common. Because you give them a judgeship, they get out of the way. It's a job for life. You get a pension. You get the cool robes. So, yeah, this is a classic Jersey political move. So you could extrapolate that this could go all the way to the White House. Bill Clinton, when he was the president, offered a Supreme Court judgeship to then former governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, the father of the current governor. And in that case, it wasn't so much because he was going to run against him, but he was kind of an alternate power center. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, would have been a very elegant way to kind of get him out of the political game. Then we move on to the subplot of Gavin the Hacker plugging away at the FBI in a job he was put into by Doug Stamper, who is Frank's former hatchet man, you're particularly fond of Stamper, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know that fond of is the right characterization. But I do like his character because I feel like every politician I have ever known has someone who is essentially their Doug Stamper, who does their dirty work, who says the things that the politician doesn't want to ever be caught saying directly to people who make sure that things are taken care of and is in some ways the sort of embodiment of their entire dark side. Mm -hmm. And even the cleanest, most honest politicians around, there's always a Doug Stamper somewhere in the mix. Give me a couple of examples. <laughs> the guy that um, Andrew and I have been reporting on recently is at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. His name is David Wildstein, mm -hmm. and he was the one who we believe was responsible for closing down the lanes that caused the whole Bridgegate scandal for Governor Christie. He was an anonymous political blogger for 10 years, and he developed a lot of sources with staffers and politicos in that process, and he is known to not have ever thrown out an electronic or physical file. So he's got information on everybody. He also knows who has provided information on other people. And he has a mind for the history of all of this, which is also something that these kind of dark arts guys have in common. <laughs> he was at the Port Authority for Christie as his political fixer. He was finding out which mayors could possibly endorse the governor. He was getting them gifts like artifacts from Ground Zero, which is overseen by the Port Authority. And occasionally threatening them, right? Christy had another guy handling that kind of stuff. <laughs> Doug did everything for, uh, for Frank in this case. Well, you can, how many Dougs can you have in a narrative <laughs> like House of Cards, right? He is the embodiment of all of that. Does he ever get you down? Does who? Does Doug? Doug, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the problems that I'm having with the season thus far is that, you know, it's its own universe with its own set of rules, but it seems to me to be kind of violating those 
same sets of rules. So here's Doug Stamper, and he knows about two murders committed by the President of the United States, and he's kind of left to rot over in his apartment. The fact that he could even get to the point which happens in this episode where he calls up Heather Dunbar is kind of nuts to me. And they're so worried about Rachel somewhere, wherever she is, with no power, and yet they're not that worried about Doug. So that is something that I feel is a, is a kind of uh, bothersome plot point. It is point. a bit strange because he's not exactly Mr. Stability. And he's and, alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> Frank talks privately with Mr. Mahmood, the man who was maimed in the drone attack, who lost members of his family there. Frank apologizes. Mahmood says... He can't accept the apology. And here's the clip. The numbers of non-combatants who are being killed by drone strikes is lower than it's ever been. Those numbers are false. One civilian killed in 2010? That has to be wrong. Look, I don't think the Pentagon is being honest about... Are you okay? (laughs) I'll get the doctor up here. Don't do that. It'll pass. Phantom pain. You know what I dreamed of when I came here? Choking you with my bare hands. I hold. But here's the reality. I must make decisions every day that I hope are just. I don't know right from wrong all the time. I wish I did. But what I can't be is indecisive. Right. (laughs) But here's the question I want to ask you both. We know that this is a moment for Frank which affects his actions later in this episode, or so he says. Have either of you ever seen a politician ever experience a genuine, mind-changing moment of conscience? I don't know that that's really what's going on here. Because in my experience, most political leaders think of themselves as very, very good people who really want to do the right things. And Sometimes they might have to bend a few rules to get there, but it's essentially in the service of the good. And I just think that Frank is kind of not, I don't think he's really experiencing regret. I think he is, I think he did hope to get a pat on the back from this guy. He hoped to get absolution, uh, but I don't know that he felt sorry. You're not seeing it right there. But he's meeting with Justice Jacobs. We learn in an earlier scene, he's in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Frank says he wants him to retire after earlier saying he didn't want him to retire. Frank mentions Dunbar as a successor. Jacobs likes her, but says that Frank had convinced him earlier to stay and that he'll only step down in 2016 if it looks like the Republicans will win and then Frank steps away, furious, and breaks that fourth wall. Must I destroy this man? Mr. President? No. 
Excuse me? So a couple of things there. He decides not to threaten him. Also, and this is new, apparently Alzheimer's endows you with the power to hear Underwood break the fourth wall. Yeah, what was up with that? That was so odd to me. Why did they do that? We're certainly led to believe that this drone strike, the one that he didn't even call, is putting him off his game. Here's my proof for you, Andrea. Why did I hold back? Why did I show Jacobs any mercy? Francis, this doesn't sound like you. Put this behind you. Think about what's next. It was because of my mood. I let him get to me. And all those flags on those coffins and those soldiers who I deployed and then I buried in the ground. It's Stop my... It. This isn't doing you any good. I will talk about this with you if you want. But if you're doubting yourself, I can't indulge that. But that's only if you take him at his word. (laughs) To his wife when he's full of self-loathing. Right, but they lie to each other all the time. No, come on. Now we're going to turn to Underwood and the press corps. Isla Syed is talking to Seth, and they're discussing what she calls a moratorium about talking about Frank's big strange jobs plan called uh, America Works. No one in the administration is talking to her anyway. I'm supposed to write about Amherst. How can I do that when no one from the executive branch will speak to me? This thing's shifting under our feet in Congress. By the time I finish the morning brief, it's already outdated. I'm not asking for a one-on-one with the president, but the Secretary of Labor, Treasury, one of his economic advisors. Give you special treatment. I think you issued the moratorium because you're losing the battle. It's $500 billion. This is the largest jobs program since the New Deal. Of course it's a slugfest. That doesn't mean we're losing. Then let me speak to someone who can confirm that. Because all I'm hearing from the Republicans is that Amworks will never see the light of day. You've both experienced, quote, moratoriums, yes? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, after doing one particularly unfriendly story to the administration of Governor George Pataki, a memo went out that nobody was allowed to talk to me. There was an actual moratorium on giving me information. How long did that last? It lasted a good while. I mean... You know, I just expected that I was not going to get anything through official channels and, you know, I had to go through a lot of back doors uh, where you get the more interesting information anyway. And I know, Matt, you've been all over Chris Christie like a 50-cent deodorant for years. <laughs> the penalty box is what it's known <laughs> in Christie world. And that's that's actually a term from Christie world, not from the reporters. And you're shut out. You don't get return phone calls. But you don't exactly know why you're in there and you don't exactly know when you're getting out, which kind of gives it more potency because you don't know what you did wrong. This is on House of Cards. We'll hear more from Andrea Bernstein and Matt Katz in just a moment. Okay, we're going to jump to Frank's press conference. He puts forward the official position But then he's caught off guard by that pesky Isla who accuses Frank of skirting the issue of gay rights by framing the matter as a free speech issue. Yes, Zachary. Following up, isn't dodging gay rights a calculated move for a man not running for office? You think I'm dodging? Well, then let me be as clear as I possibly can be. Gay people have rights. 
And this administration has always believed that Mr. Corrigan has the right to speak his mind without fear of being arrested on any issue, whether it's gay rights or something else. And what is also quite clear is that you must have failed etiquette class. <laughs> yes, Zachary. Why won't you speak to John Pasternak, Michael Ms. Corrigan's Sia, There are other members of the press Mr. here Pasternak today. Mr. Pasternak has been trying to contact the White House, so no one will speak with him. I do apologize. I have a meeting. I wish I could have gotten to all your questions. But if you have any further inquiries, please direct them to Mr. Grayson. Thank you very much. This seemed a little over the top. I mean, her aggressiveness made sense in the beginning, but by that last question, uh, we've all seen these White House press conferences. They stand up. They're polite. They ask for a follow-up. Um, this seemed highly unusual and even stranger. A president wouldn't walk away and end the press conference and claim he has a meeting after an aggressive reporter asked him a few questions, in my experience. Oh, really, Matt? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think we happen to have a piece of tape that addresses that. Really? <laughs> yes. Even if that means Senator McCain doesn't get on the ballot what depends? It depends on what the rule, What depends on what the rules are. What's fair is that we all play by the same rules. You Senator McCain also. Andrea, oh, you're only allowed one question. President George Bush shutting down Andrea. Well, there is the thing. That's the etiquette. Not being a member of the White House press corps then or ever, I broke the etiquette. And I tried to ask a follow-up question about whether it was fair for him to keep John McCain off the New York ballot. This was back in 2000. And he said, well, you got to play by the rules. And then he said, you only get one question, Andrea. I have been told that by so (laughs) many politicians. The scene with Isla was not that subtle. It went on and on. They made sure you got the point. But the idea that she would be in trouble for persistently asking a follow-up question, and it's the, the skepticism Why would someone who's not running for president be squirrely on gay rights? That's what Mm -hmm. bothered him because he was losing control of the narrative. I guess you've never broken etiquette, Matt. You must be a very well-brought-up young man. I worked the cones, actually, uh, Matt. Unbeknownst to everybody, I was actually the guy out there. I was in overalls and a hat, so I wasn't. A, but I actually was the guy working the cones out there. You really are not serious. <laughs> the infamous Chris Christie quip about Bridgegate that you elicited, Matt. Which was the first time he had ever faced a Bridgegate question before the whole Bridgegate thing blew up, you hear a little subtle uh, in the background, and that is me trying to interject a follow-up question. So I am certainly not above breaking etiquette to go for a follow-up question, but it's, you know, at some point you let it go because there is a certain degree of decorum. And I've also found in watching, I've never been in a White House press conference, but also in watching these things, they are much more formalized and polite than when you're doing a gaggle and following a a senator out of a meeting room and firing questions at him. On the other hand, I remember the famous exchange between Dan Rather and Nixon, where Nixon says, Are you running for something? And Dan Rather says, No, sir, Mr. President, are you? And there were times much earlier on during the Kennedy administration where the press was far more cantankerous than it is now, far more. So I think it's quite possible that perhaps the rules of decorum right now have calcified the Washington press corps into a bunch of automatons, but that wasn't always the case. And I don't think it's inconceivable that it 
would someday not be the case, or in particular instances, particularly with an extremely unpopular president. What about the fact that the president then skulked away? Did you find that? Didn't you find that unusual that he wouldn't have more aggressively told her to sit down or called on somebody else? Sometimes if there is a reporter asking a follow-up without being called on, Christie will call on somebody else. Michael, help me, help me shut this person up. Ask your question. <laughs> and I was surprised that Underwood didn't take that kind of tack. I've seen that, though. I have definitely seen that. Mayors of New York City... Last question. Goodbye. Yeah, they they run away. I think that this is another indication that Frank is off his game. I was a little surprised, though, Isla had her press credentials yanked. Yeah, that was weird. I don't think it would happen either nope. because White House Correspondents Association is not going along with that. This is one of the things that bothers me about House of Cards universe. They just get rid of reporters like that. <laughs> you know, they just they just <laughs> kill them. They throw them in jail. They banish them to upstate New York to go cook and live with their mothers. <laughs> Anybody who might be able to find out the counter-narrative to Frank Underwood is just gotten rid of. The turning over your credentials thing, like a rogue cop who has to hand in his badge and gun, was really <laughs> absurd. I wish our press passes carried so much weight that they could be confiscated <laughs> and then we lose all of our, all of our potency. <laughs> Let me ask you about a point that was raised in the Vulture recap. Vulture wrote, Corrigan was arrested while speaking out about LGBT rights, but Frank doesn't acknowledge that. He claims it's a free speech issue. Is this because Frank has his own inner demon to wrestle with when it comes to his sexuality? It's inexplicable politically that he would not want to talk about gay rights. I mean, it just, it, he would invite Pussy Riot to a state dinner, and yet he wouldn't want to talk about gay rights. So yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, the three-way with Meacham last season, that was so delicious. And, you know, you're really kind of waiting for that to happen this season. Instead, you get this sort of stilted sex with Claire. And Oh, it wasn't uh, so stilted, actually. It was a dominance thing. It was like she was wrapping him in a diaper. It was. It was. And it had its, it definitely had its narrative function. But I don't think it was in any way was like the three-way with Meacham. And, you know, Meacham's still there. He's still to in the White his House. own, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> Heather Dunbar announces she's running for president. She goes into Frank's office, gives the resignation. He refuses to accept it. She insists... He realizes that she's talked to Justice Jacobs and knows what's up, knows she isn't going to get the Supreme Court job. And let's play that clip. And when you offered the nomination, I was overwhelmed. It's what I've been working toward my entire career. But then I spoke to Robert, and when he told me how you threatened him, I knew I had to run. Someone needs to scrub the stink from this office. I didn't threaten him. What would you call it? I was trying to save him in the same way I'm trying to save you now. Once the news of his Alzheimer's gets out, which it will, because no matter how much we all try to lie about it, it's going to leak. Can you imagine what that's going to do to his reputation? He deserves better than that, and you deserve better than being an also-ran. Help me convince him. Take the seat on the court where you belong. Is this how you live with yourself? By rationalizing the obscene into the palatable. Good line. <laughs> then she says, 
see you in Iowa, which is like, <laughs> that's the way politicians tell each other to go F themselves. It was great. <laughs> I loved it. I was amazed that she has this relationship with the Supreme Court justice. She's the solicitor general. They're in something of an adversarial situation and they have monthly dinners. And I think it's probably somewhat reflective of the reality in Washington. Like these, all these people, no matter what team they technically are on, they're all sort of on the same side and they're all just kind of one and the same. I thought that was really, really interesting. And up to now, Frank has been playing chess with himself, but she just took his bishop. I mean, she has <laughs> outplayed him beautifully on this. You just like that Frank has a real adversary, somebody that he can't just push off the edge of the metro platform when he's done with her. I can't believe you just said took his bishop because that's where we're going to go. Whoa. Frank makes a call asking for Bishop Edis. And then he shows up in the church in the middle of the night. The bishop shows up dressed in a biker jacket. They talk about motorcycles. And they talk a little bit about religion. And, and Edis strikes me as very flexible for a bishop, kind of like that Catholic priest that Carmela Soprano goes to in The Sopranos. You He's know, a pretty cool bishop. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, you're right. That's interesting. He is sort of like Carmela's priest. Um, <laughs> but then I get the sense that he really like knows Frank. He's got some sixth sense about this guy that he knows that he's the Antichrist. And the way he talks to him, he knows that there's something unholy about him. There's no such thing as absolute power for us, except on the receiving end. Using fear will get you nowhere. It's not your job to determine what's just. It's not your place to choose the version of God you like best. It's not your duty to serve this country alone, and it better not be your goal to simply serve yourself. You serve the Lord. And through him, you serve others. Two rules. Love God. Love each other. Period. Now, Frank asks to be alone to pray and checks to make sure Edis is gone and then says... Love. That's what you're selling. Well, I don't buy it. <laughs> Basically, he treats him like his father at the beginning of the series, offering him a taste of his bodily fluids. When he attempts to wipe off the spit, the statue shifts and falls on the floor, and it smashes into pieces. The Secret Service rushes in to ask if everything's all right, and he claims that he was praying. You know, and then he picks up the ear. The ear. And he says, now I have God's ear. <laughs> so Amazing. it's about the most unsubtle thing that you could possibly do is have a statue of Jesus fall on you when you are Frank Underwood. Where was the bishop, by the way? Didn't he hear this come crashing to the ground? Maybe he was out on his motorcycle checking the oil. <laughs> I'm going to share something incredibly esoteric that Jesse on our program, who turns out to be an expert in the New Testament, found for us. There's a scene in the Bible before Jesus' crucifixion. One of the disciples lops off a centurion's ear. Jesus reattaches it, and it's cited as one of the most direct demonstrations of Jesus' love for his enemies. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> that that is amazing, and I'm I am quite sure the writers of House of Cards knew that story. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned Matt the Antichrist. Jesus healed his enemy's ear. Frank steals his enemy's ear. Wonder what he did with the ear. Did, <laughs> now that makes me wonder if it's with him in the Oval Office. <laughs> Next to the black egg. <laughs> right. I want to end right there. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you for having my – wait, your ear. <laughs> no. Thank you for, for... – It was great to have your ear, Brooke. <laughs> There we go. Brooke, you always have my ear, either on On the Meteor or on House of Cards. <laughs> we have just heard from WNYC's senior editor of politics and policy, Andrea Bernstein, and also Matt Katz, who reports on New Jersey and especially Governor Chris Christie for WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, and who appears regularly on the Christie Tracker podcast, which you can find on iTunes. On House of Cards is hosted and edited by me. Kimmy Regler produced the podcast with Claire Tennisketter. Catcher Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. Subscribe to this podcast and On the Media wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at On the Media. On the next episode, Fred Kaplan will be joining me again along with Patty Solis Doyle, former aide and campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, to talk about FEMA funding and power peeing. With the door open. <laughs> With the door open. And you have to love the staff person, too, who was outside the restroom. That would have been you, by the way. <laughs> it would have been you. <laughs>